Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And today, I have something extra special for all of you listeners out there. My good friend, Ariel Kasten, has joined the show. Say hi, Ariel. Hi, Ariel. Okay, and I'll I'll give you a better introduction in a second. So (laughs) Ariel and I have just launched a new podcast. Really, it's an old podcast, but it's a new version of an old podcast called Large Nerdron Collider, which we will talk about more at the end of this episode. But I thought it might be fun to bring Ariel on to my show. It is not her first appearance on Tech Stuff. No, we've talked about steganography and about armory and weapons before. So I feel like what we're going to talk about today is a little bit of a revisit. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, science fiction and speculative fiction. Some of the stuff we'll talk about, you could argue, really falls more into the realm of fantasy than science fiction. But that all kind of gets lumped under the the category speculative fiction. Uh, and we're going to talk about some of the stuff that appears like the popular stuff that appears in speculative fiction, and then talk about what, if any, corollaries there are in the real world. Uh, And if we see any technologies that are kind of like the baby version of the stuff we see in sci-fi, or if we are leagues away from light years away, you might say. And um, (laughs) yeah. And uh, also we did, like we made an outline for this that we thought at first was, you know, modest. It was Reasonable. decent. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it blew up. So <laughs> we are going to go through as much of this as we can, but we're not going to turn this into a marathon length episode. We don't even know how long this is going to go. It may turn out that this will be a two parter and I'll have Ariel back for part two. We don't, we haven't recorded it yet. So the time travel spoiler alert doesn't really work. So I can't tell you how long it's going to be until we do it. Yeah. Sad to say. I mean, we could go back and insert something, but that's not really time travel. That's work. See, that's not time travel. That's just work. And I hate work. (laughs) You know me. So one of the things we wanted to chat about first is the role of technology in science fiction. Because obviously, you know, the, the two tend to go hand in hand, right? We tend to think of, of Mm -hmm. science fiction and technology being, integral to one another, that if you don't have at least some version of of high tech in your science fiction, it's not really science fiction. Um, yeah. But I would I would say that to me, good science fiction starts with the story, the characters and the situations that they are in and how they handle those situations, whether for good or for ill. And that all the tech stuff, not the podcast, but the stuff, what is tech, is sort of window dressing for that story. And that when storytellers take the inverse of that, where the technology ends up playing the central role and the story and characters kind of take a backseat to it, I think of that as what I like to call bad science fiction. (laughs) I tend to agree with you, Jonathan. I mean, there are occasions where I think that 
just the 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 scientific technology, the fantastical technology in a story can be enough to make it fun. It might be a potato chip movie, but it can be fun just to watch that. Pacific Rim is a great example of that for me, where like watching the Jaegers interact is is more of the story to me. The the story of the technology is more of the story than the people, and I still enjoy it. But at that point, the technology is almost taking on a persona itself. Yeah, yeah. And there is something to say about, you know, spectacle, right? Like, mm-hmm. spectacle can be entertaining. Uh, if it weren't, then we wouldn't have movies like Independence Day, right? All, all the big disaster films that are just pure spectacle for like an hour and a half. Um, and And I don't mean to really turn my nose up at it. I just don't think of it as being particularly artful. I think... That if you have a really good story first and then you you set it in a futuristic world, for one thing, that can give you enough distance as an audience that you can look at something that actually does relate very much to the way the real world works. But you've distanced it enough where you can think about it objectively without taking, mm-hmm. you know, the real world into account until maybe much further afterward, like. Hands, Handmaid's Tale, I think, falls into that category. Um, although you could argue Handmaid's Tale has, in more recent years, become far more relevant. But um, you, you get where I'm going here, I think. Yes. Yes, I do. But I want to talk less about Handmaid's Tale and more <laughs> about uh, handheld tales. So I want to start with, I would say, what is pretty integral to a lot of science fiction, which is... Laser guns. Right. And we're not talking about necessarily a specific example here, just that laser guns or ray guns in general are kind of a kind of like the the stereotypical symbol of science fiction weaponry, right? It's like the mm-hmm. pew pew laser that's the go-to for science fiction. Yeah. If we were to pick out specific laser guns, we'd be here all day. forever talking about them. So Jonathan, so instead of saying this is how laser guns work in science fiction, because every science fiction tends to at least have their own nuances to how their technology works. Are laser guns realistic Uh, in real life? Not in the handheld versions that we see in science fiction, because in order to generate a, a laser of sufficient energy, capable of de- of delivering a, a, a truly devastating blast, you would need such a large energy source that you could not fit it into a, a rifle or a pistol format. So one of the biggest challenges we have with technology today is that when it comes to energy storage and releasing energy, we are limited by physics, you know, and and I mean, we're limited by physics and everything, but physics has has slowed that down. Like you, you've probably heard of Moore's law, Ariel. Mm-hmm. That's the idea yes. that computers are technically we boil it down to computers are getting twice as powerful every two years or so. But the problem with that is that energy storage doesn't follow that same trajectory. So we don't we don't get to a point where like, oh, the batteries of today are are twice as powerful. They can hold twice as much energy and they can release it twice as as quickly as the old batteries. That's not how batteries work. It's just it's an electrochemical process. You can't make it 
do more than what it physically is <laughs> capable of doing. So that would mean that you would, if you wanted to use like a laser rifle or a laser gun, you would likely have to have that connected to a larger power source, potentially one so large that you couldn't easily carry it. Like maybe you could have a back mounted type of power source that you could wear as like a backpack. You wouldn't be able to carry much else. Uh, and even then, Lasers wouldn't behave the way we typically see them in science fiction, right? You wouldn't get a pew. You wouldn't have a noise at all. There'd be no reason to have a noise. Uh, you'd have a noise from maybe the person who got hit by a laser. So, so you wouldn't even have like a... No, no, no. It's it's like turning on a flashlight, right? Like, or if you have a laser mm -hmm. pointer, you don't get a noise with that. Well, I mean, you do with me because I, I supply it myself. <laughs> I do the zoom, zoom noises, but uh, also you wouldn't get those distinct beams like those those short blasts, which we'll talk about again in, in a second. I'm sure you wouldn't get those. Mm -hmm. It would be an uninterrupted beam just as you would with a you would get with a laser pointer. And uh, assuming you don't have a lot of particulate matter or if it's a bright day, you wouldn't even see the beam. Right. You would see the the spot where it hit the target but you wouldn't mm -hmm. see an unbroken beam unless there was like a lot of dust in the air, just like you wouldn't see lasers like in any of those those movies, like a, a heist movie where they have to blow dust in the air so that they can see the laser grid. And then someone in, in a cat suit will do flippy flips through it. Um, but yeah, that's so, so, we, so they don't they don't work the way they do in science fiction. So we couldn't, you know, take a laser engraver or laser etcher and turn that into a weapon. I mean, um, you could do it Goldfinger style. <laughs> no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Uh, you could do it like, like lasers are powerful enough. Like you can get a laser powerful enough to do physical damage. Like to, I mean, we, we can use lasers to cut through stuff like steel. So we could clearly use it to do damage to a person. Uh, it wouldn't be like that, that super uh, quick flash. I mean, heat still has to take time to transfer and, and, and have an effect, but you could get some vaporization, some plasmification of, of a, of a, uh, a site, which it could also create uh, a shockwave and that could do damage as well. So you could weaponize lasers. And in fact, the military has looked into it, but we're mostly talking about like vehicle mounted handheld. stuff, right? Yeah. Not, not like yeah. handheld things. Okay, well, okay, so no laser guns, but what about blasters? So blasters are guns in Star Wars. They are – they use particle beam energy uh, and, and fire plasma bolts. So that's not laser light. That's plasma, which is different. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and maybe – and then go into, if it is possible, can you adjust that? So could you stun somebody with it versus killing them? All of which is possible with a Star Wars blaster. Uh, and then can you add different things to it to make them do different things? For instance, a Star Wars blaster uh, has super cheap red bolts or orange bolts that are a little bit are used for like training or blue bolts that are used ionized and used for machinery disruptions. So yeah, how possible is that? So th these are great questions because there's a lot to pack in here, right? Uh, the blasters in star Wars, first of all, they're called particle beam weapons, uh, which already mm -hmm. is kind of um, ridiculous. So the, the words particle beam tell you, this is a beam of particles, and typically we talk about subatomic particles, like, you know, 
protons. Charged particles, typically, although you could have a particle beam of neutrons, it's just harder to get it moving. Uh, with particle accelerators, this, these use particle beams, but particle accelerators are, are pretty big. Uh, the Large Hadron Collider is more than 16 miles in circumference. The reason for that size is that it's using very powerful magnets to push charged particles in a circle to accelerate them near the speed of light. Now, they are particles. They have mass, so they'll never mm -hmm. get to the speed of light. And we'll touch on that again later, too. <laughs> uh, but they you get them up really super fast so that you collide them with another beam of particles that you have traveling in the opposite direction. So think of two different beams of particles going in opposite directions around a circle. Their paths are not crossing as you get that speed higher and higher and higher. And you're using very powerful, super cooled magnets to do this. And then ultimately you direct them at each other and some of the particles collide. And that's where you get these collisions that we then study. Well, if you had any way of making that into a handgun, we wouldn't need a 16 plus mile circumference <laughs> facility, right? You wouldn't be able to speed the particles up to any appreciable level uh, using something, again, the size of a handgun that doesn't connect to some other larger power source. So again, same power trouble that we had with the lasers. Now, you also mentioned they fire plasma bolts. So if you're yes. talking about using the particle beam to generate plasma, that's not the most efficient way to create plasma. Plasma is um, ionized gas. It is the most plentiful form of matter in the universe. It's what our sun is made out of. Uh, S-U-N. Ariel and I don't have any kids. Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> that would, it would be shocking to me and to Ariel to learn that we had a sun. Uh, no, the sun. It, it, it works, you know, it's it's made out of plasma. And an ionized gas is, is powerful stuff. We'll touch on that again, too. But making a beam uh, or a bolt of it and having that bolt stay coherent, in other words, maintains its bolt shape as it travels through toward its target uh, is not really realistic either for multiple reasons. Plasma is a gas. So it's like if you if you blow out air, the air expands outward as it leaves the nozzle or your mouth or whatever. Mm -hmm. If you're blowing out air, it, you, you can't like blow so that a little bolt of air will hold its shape. You can get like interesting air gun type things that can create a, a sort of um, vortex effect that can travel much further. Uh, we've seen those in like, you know, novelty stores and stuff, but yeah. uh, you wouldn't be able to really keep plasma together. As for the different colors, uh, I think that they're, they're relating that back to lasers. And in fact, the laser color does tell you a lot about the energy level of the laser because you're looking at the spectrum of light and the the further toward the violet side you get, the more energy those photons can have. So uh, red is actually very low energy. Infrared is even lower. You get up to violet and ultraviolet, you're getting into very high energy. You go beyond that, you start seeing you start to get to stuff like X-rays and gamma rays, which are such high energy that if they if we're exposed to them for any length of time, uh, they can ionize the atoms in our body, and we can have real serious problems like like problems with DNA damage and stuff. So there is something to that. Uh, as for the the blue beams, the uh, ion cannon version of Star Wars, uh, using ions to overwhelm machinery, there's something to that. Um, when you look at an electromagnetic pulse or EMP, 
that is something that can disrupt electronics. It's essentially overloading the electronic circuits and causes them to either fry, so it's useless, or shut down. And we see that kind of happen naturally, like when um, when there's a solar storm. So it does make sense that a blaster could, in theory, cause a explosion um, from vibrations and stuff like that, it sounds like. Well, from... Imparting energy. I mean, we really what you're getting yeah. to is imparting energy to a target, and uh, uh, or in the case of uh, of like the ion cannon, the idea of overloading an electrical system. You're essentially you're essentially putting more juice into it than it can handle, and it shuts down. Mm. Um, the the word ion tells us that because ion is a charged particle. Uh, typically, you're talking about an atom that has either more electrons than it would normally have to have a neutral charge. So it ends up having a negative charge or fewer electrons. So that means because there are more protons than electrons, you get a positive charge. That's an ion. Uh, So ion cannon tells us that this has to do with electricity. um, And that that's why it works on uh, robots and ships and shields and stuff like that. But it's supposed to be, you know, harmless when it hits a person. As for stunning and all that kind of stuff, uh, I mean, I guess it just works for the the needs of the plot, but there's yeah. there's nothing I can connect to. Like, a lot of weapons that are marketed as quote-unquote non-lethal are really, it just means that uh, in, in the majority of cases, the effect of the weapon is, is supposed to be one that incapacitates the target and doesn't kill the target. But Mm -hmm. uh, very frequently, non-lethal weapons can lead to lethal consequences. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds to me then that Star Wars got the bowcaster a bit closer to something that could be done in reality, simply from the fact that it is much larger. It's very, very heavy, although I don't think Chewbacca is 16 miles tall to carry a 16 (laughs) That would be that would be a very to, tall to carry Chewbacca. Had Hadron Collider, uh, you know, it uses metal and it uses magnets to work. So the way that a, a bowcaster works is it you cock you cock the spring and you push the trigger and it lets out a metal what is called a quarrel, mm-hmm. so like a bolt or an arrow. It covers it in plasma mm-hmm. and then it gets pushed super fast through two magnets that are at the end of the bowcaster. So I'm guessing that that is a little closer to reality, even though I'm also guessing that you can't exactly coat uh, a metal bolt in plasma, it, it, the type of plasma that we're talking about in real life. Yeah, yeah, um, you're exactly right. So, yes, you can use magnets to propel projectiles i mean there are there are rail guns uh, rail gun designs that use exactly that right the idea of mm-hmm. using using magnetism to uh, to pull and then perhaps push a a projectile at great speed so there's nothing necessarily wrong about that but as you allude to the uh, plasmas are a different matter so again unless you have something to contain the plasma or to hold it to the bolt, it would bloom and disperse immediately upon being fired. So you would Mm -hmm. have it just become this puff of very hot gas. And of course, heat dissipates very quickly too. So it's why like you can use a a plasma torch 
without melting your face off, right? Like people use mm-hmm. plasma torches to to cut through stuff and heat that's because heat doesn't transfer through air that effectively. Air is not the best conductor for heat. So uh, you would have this dissipate pretty fast and it wouldn't stay around the bolt. So you wouldn't have that nice uh, bolt that would go from the bowcaster to the target unless you had some way of holding the plasma there, which would mean either it would have to be contained within the coral, which presumably would burst upon hitting its target so that the plasma would Mm -hmm. cause extra damage Uh, because plasmas do tend to burn very, very hot. Or you would have to have some sort of electromagnets in the coral themselves to hold the plasma there because since the plasma is an ionized gas and since it has free-flowing electrons, it has an electric charge. So an electric charge means it also has a magnetic field, which means that with magnets you can actually contain a plasma. But I can't think of any way where you would do that in a projectile. So uh, while, while there are certain basics that work... Uh, the actual implementation would not. Well, at least they got it closer. Even if they did then fudge it to have Han Solo be able to carry and fire a bowcaster, I don't want to know what he did to get the grip strength to be able to do that. I think he must have just had a crazy mom energy, you know? Like when the mom sees, like the, the car is on top of her kid and she lifts the car up. So Han just had crazy dog owner energy for Chewbacca. Yeah, nobody puts Chewie in a corner. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right, so that means that I'm guessing that Star Trek phasers also are not that realistic because they're also particle-directed energy weapons, although they do have a steady stream as opposed to blasters, which shoot the bolts. Yeah, yeah. So does that make them more possible? I mean, I don't think it makes it more possible. I think it at least makes it less of a... Uh, less of a pew pew laser type thing than we typically see because it, it does tend to be a steady beam. You probably wouldn't see the beams. Uh, they, you know, Star Trek is, is infamous for attempting to justify its technologies with lengthy explanations. Part, yes. Partly because, I mean, there's a whole industry around writing technical books mm-hmm. for the Star Trek universe. Same thing's true for Star yeah. Wars too, but yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a Trekkie. I'm not that much of a Trekkie. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and it's, it's also one that talks about things like, um, like, like actual phase. I mean, phaser, depending on whom you ask, phasers are called that because they're either a mixture of the words photon and maser so it's, which is the same as light and maser, which became laser. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but now but instead <laughs> of saying light, it was photon, I guess, because it sounded more science fictiony. Um, photons are being the particles of light. And so you got phaser or some people talk about the f- phasing the beam of the frequency of the laser. Now, that would just mean that a phaser would be able to go from lower energy phases like on that red side of the spectrum to higher energy mm-hmm. phases on the violet side of the spectrum. Um but still not really possible. Again, we get back to that energy component. That's a big part of it. But yeah. also that Star Trek just relies very heavily on techno babble. They they do. But I will say they do have, it's a phaser. Their phasers do go from low to di- to stun to disintegrate. Yeah. Uh, and and they also do account for in Star, in Star Trek, um, that energy pull. So for instance, the, the cannons that they would put on their ship because they got all kinds of phaser, phaser, um, 
weapons and devices. And phaser arrays. They can put a wrap in arrays, which shoot multiple phasers. So a phaser cannon, which can be rapid fire or regular, would be bolted to the ship and would pull from the warp core to channel power. We aren't going to get into warp cores yet, but at least they accounted for that need of a large power draw. Right, right. Yeah, it's not like... You put in two D cell batteries in the in the back of the Enterprise, yeah. <laughs> and somebody can start blasting the Klingon bird of prey. That's a good point. Yeah, so uh, that that at least is something that is that is realistic in the sense that you would need to have a, a sufficiently powerful power source to tap into in order to to generate and then um, you know fire multiple times this this powerful mm-hmm. beam weapon. They also do use their phasers for things like drilling and heating, which we do know that lasers can do. Yeah, we we use them for those purposes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a little bit closer to reality. They also have that you can track the nadium particles back to the phaser. Um, Is it possible to track particles of of a plasma burst or a laser back to what fired it? No. <laughs> I mean, no. Like I I don't know what you would be tracking because again, plasma being an ionized gas, uh you know, you would I guess you could try and see if you could detect whether or not a specific gas was present in an area, but you're typically talking about a pretty small amount of gas in comparison to the gas that's in whatever environment you're in. If you're in a room or mm-hmm. heck, if you're outside, Forget it. So uh, also like <laughs> Star Trek, you know, they're using these these fictional particles, which helps. I mean, it really helps for you to explain your sci- how your science fiction technology works if you make up <laughs> the stuff, yes. the stuff that's yes. making it work. So that that also it plays a big part in it. But yeah, there's not any way that I can think of about how you would trace that back so that you would say, aha, I have found the phaser that killed Colonel Mustard <laughs> in the study. Uh I could be wrong about that, okay, but I can't well, think of how it would work. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I'm gonna I'm gonna give up on this train of thought. But I do have one more handheld projectile, kind of handheld, one more projectile weapon. Well, that I'm gonna hit you with. I would I would suspect. First of all, I beg you not to hit me with that projectile weapon because okay. I'm I'm a delicate man, and also I can't wait to hear it. But first, let's take a quick break. Okay, so I've been waiting. I'm not going to hit you with it. Okay. I'm going to throw it at you. Is that better? Uh, So there's this device called a weirding module, and this is a real corner case one, but I know it's one that you like because you like Dune. Yes. It is in the movie version of Dune, not the book version of Dune, mainly because the director of the movie version did not want to have Kung Fu on sand for his movie. So he replaced the Betty Jesseret martial art, the weirding way with the weirding module, which is a a sound based weapon Mm -hmm. uh, that uses specific sound, turns specific sounds into attacks. For instance, the name of the hero in the story, Uh, uh, Mwadib. Mwadib. Yes. As, as in a, uh, you know, we get the Atreides uh, uh, Freeman name, Mwadib. Yes. Yes. Uh, and so in the books, they do use some some sonic technology mm-hmm. in the later books mm-hmm. for detecting people underground and crowd control and things like that. But 
what about this this sonic weapon that can Th- that can break rocks? <laughs> that can break rocks. Yeah, because in, in the scene where they first show it off, uh, uh, the the protagonist has one of these. And the modules look really weird too. They're these things that mount on like mm-hmm. the hand. It doesn't look like you know. It's not like a, a gun shape, um, but he uses it to destroy a an obelisk of rock after other people have uh, kicked it, punched it, and tried to cut it, and then yelled at it. Um, and then he shows. I mean. Yeah. When I kick and punch rocks, it doesn't do much either. Right. So he he uses it to show that that it can convert the sound of his voice into a uh, something powerful enough to shatter the rock. Um, and uh, just as a, a little side note about the martial arts thing, you know, the martial arts in the book it allows people to essentially teleport very short distances. They can move faster than they would physically be able to and appear on a different part of a person and and punch them. And Lynch did not know how he could possibly pull that off and make it look good. In the post-Matrix world, uh, I think it's entirely possible. So I suspect we'll see that in the upcoming movie. I I suspect so as well. Uh, You haven't watched the trailer for it, but... I haven't seen that in the trailer. I have seen... I've seen teasers. Maybe I haven't seen the specific trailer. If that, that so, there's a trailer that shows the weirding way. Uh, there's a trailer that shows somebody's head or hand or some part of their body vibrating at a like a ridiculous speed. I'm gesturing like you can all see it on <laughs> on audio. Yeah, but, I can um, I can tell you that yeah. she was in fact making her hand vibrate faster than the eye can see, uh, largely because <laughs> her webcam. I have the weirding way. So the weirding <laughs> module uh, using Sonic signals as a weapon. Uh, this is not that far off from things that we actually have. We do not have anything that could shatter a rock obelisk like instantaneously through sound. However, uh, sound is a physical uh, phenomenon. So when mm-hmm. we hear sounds, what we're hearing are there's fluctuations in air pressure and those fluctuations affect our eardrums. And then we we interpret that, we experience that as sound, right? So... We're all we're talking about vibrations. So you are talking about stuff moving. And while that stuff is just air and air has very low mass, you get enough air moving that low that, you know, enough of it is enough to do massive things. Otherwise, tornadoes wouldn't be a problem. Right. I mean, air can air can do some serious damage if it's moving powerfully enough and there's enough of it. Uh, That being said, the something that's directed as that would be very difficult to do, but you can create directed beams of acoustic energy. And in fact, we do have materials that do this um, and they have been used in weapons. The long range acoustic device or LRAD is an example of that. That was developed by the military. The original purpose was to outfit naval ships with these what, what amounts to a very powerful, very directed speaker. And you can point the speaker at a target and because of the way the sound waves emerge from the speaker, uh, it uses this special approach where the center of the speaker is very much directed at a target, and the outside of the speaker puts a an out-of-phase sound signal to keep the central part focused. So it's almost like a laser. You can, you know, usually sound waves spread out uh, from their point of origin, and they, they, they diffuse, so it's broadcast. This is more directed. And it was originally meant as a way to communicate to another boat that is far away that you don't have radio communication with. So you could say, turn away or whatever. 
or you could use an alarm and use it as a deterrent because you could use an alarm in the range of human hearing, make it really loud, really uncomfortable, point it at, say, a boat of pirates and deter them from coming toward a ship. And we have since seen various police forces outfitted with these as well and have used them uh, to um, notorious effect on things like protests for a method Mm -hmm. of crowd dispersal. But the problem is uh, that these LRAD devices can, can put out sound at a decibel level high enough to rupture eardrums. And if you are in the direct path, it can be enough not just to burst your eardrums, which means you're deaf. It can also cause disorientation and nausea and, and I mean, some severe health mm-hmm. effects. So while we don't have a sonic weapon capable of breaking, you know, a statue just by blasting some sound at it in a second, uh, we do have things that can do some pretty serious damage. And if you tune a sound wave to the resonant frequency of a substance, meaning that when the sound hits it, it's hitting it at a frequency that the substance naturally already vibrates at, then it'll start to amplify that vibration. You can make a substance break apart that way. That's how we see like opera singers breaking crystal glasses. It's the same sort of idea. But again, uh, it's a little more complicated than wearing a glove and humming (laughs) in it and having it blast apart a rock. Yeah, it, it makes sense that LRADs can can cause some damage to, to people. Because when I punch and kick people, not that I do, that causes damage more than me punching and kicking rocks. Um, so it seems like Dune is the closest to reality as far as projectile weapons. But I'm going to go back to Star Wars because they're losing so far in the reality wars. Oh, well, um, I'm sure this will really help them catch up. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to I'm going to. Veer off from projectile weapons, because obviously they're losing there. What about handheld weapons, specifically a lightsaber? Mm, the lightsaber. It's a, plas- it's a plasma blade. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I know. Uh, powered by a kyber crystal, which is actually both organic and inorganic, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, which is probably like two people. And somehow attuned to the uh, force as well. And attuned to the force. Yeah. So if you're the dark side, you can force it to do your will, but it might make like it might make the crystal bleed or it might make you go insane. Like Darth Vader had crazy visions from it. Um, And it works in conjunction with a power cell and modulation circuits and an energy gate and a blade emitter shroud and an emitter matrix and a hilt activator. So you need the force to use it, but you still need a little button to activate it. What the goodness. Um, Well, I mean, so they're pretty customizable, but is that possible? So uh, no, but um, no with some, no with some (laughs) qualifiers, no with some qualifiers, because you can make something that can do stuff that a lightsaber can do, but it is not, a lightsaber in the sense of Star Wars. Now, to be fair, Star Wars, I think, falls into kind of a fantasy science fiction. It's it's yes. it's more of a, of a fantasy than than hard sci-fi. Uh, we've already talked about plasma and how that's an ionized gas and it diffuses after a while. But what you can do um, is, well, you got a couple of options. Uh, there's actually these guys uh, that do incredible videos, uh, Hacksmith Industries. I don't know if you've ever seen their stuff, Ariel. Yeah, I have. I think I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah, too. so they've got a couple different versions of lightsabers that they have built over the years, and uh, one of them involves having a metal rod that that comes out of a hilt, and then they use uh, 
a means of heating up that metal rod to the point where it's glowing. So it's hot enough to cut through stuff. And in that case, you're like, well, it glows like a lightsaber. Uh, it can make contact with another lightsaber like a lightsaber and it can cut through mm-hmm. stuff like it a can, lightsaber. And it can cauterize like a lightsaber. Yeah, and it can cauterize like a lightsaber. That is true. Uh, however, it can't extend or retract. I mean, it's a, it's a solid piece of metal. Um, and, uh, and, and it, you, when you turn it off, you got to wait a while before that blade is, you know, not so hot that it would make wood just burst into flame if you touched it to it. So then they made mm-hmm. one that they called more of a plasma lightsaber. I take a little issue with that terminology, but only a little. And they used a nozzle so that they could uh, inject oxygen and I think propane <laughs> together to create a mm-hmm. mixture and they and it lights and it creates a very controlled flame that is more or less lightsaber shaped. Um, they could even control the color of the lightsaber by adding in different uh, stuff into the mixture because when you burn different stuff, you get different colors of flame, right? So, Un- unlike a lightsaber where it's the kyber crystal that makes the color of the lightsaber, right. which I guess could be also additives to the crystal. Yeah, I mean, well, to be the, fair, the the, the Sith were known for having synthetic crystals, which were the the red ones, at least in some versions of Star Wars lore. Uh, there are a lot mm-hmm. of different versions of Star Wars lore, so it's I yes. don't even know what's canon anymore. So um, <laughs> but yeah, the 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 blade that they made was I would call it more of a fire than a plasma. I mean, granted, it was hot enough where I'm sure it was it, it was a plasma in that sense, but it wasn't like electrified or ionized gas in the sense of what a plasma typically would be. Uh, but it was hot enough to cut through metal. It could, uh, you know, it could extend and retract. The only thing that it can't do that a lightsaber can do, as we've seen in the movies, is if you had two of them and you swung them at each other, uh, they would not have like made contact. Like you wouldn't have a, a, a physical contact where you'd feel that feedback. Yeah. Uh, they might combine into one, enormous flame, which would be terrifying, but uh, they would not behave as a lightsaber in that sense. Yeah, I, I know that lightsabers can make contact. The The weapons that lightsabers can make contact with or the items that lightsabers can make contact with other than like a certain kind of animal and a certain weave of fibers, uh, which are actually used in other weapons and, and tools to combat that, is ener- energy conducting weapons. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like the, the the weapons that conduct energy are the ones that can kind of make contact with the lightsaber without just being cut in half. It doesn't sound like either of these would be fec- affected at all by no. that. And also, uh, one other thing I was going to mention is that I could have allowed, because, you know, Star Wars has magic in it. It's the Force. The Force is magic, right? Mm-hmm. I could have allowed that a lightsaber only holds its form because of a Jedi using the Force to, to keep the lightsaber in that form, right? Because which is why you need the training, right? Because otherwise, it would be the other issues that we've had with you know the whole idea with plasma is that it it, it blooms so quickly after being released unless you have some sort of powerful nozzle to keep it in the right shape. Uh, however, we know that's not the case because Han Solo picks up a lightsaber to cut open the belly of a tauntaun, and Han Solo mm-hmm. does not have a command of the Force, so we know that you can. You can use a lightsaber, even if you're not a Jedi. Uh, it's just not recommended because they're so dangerous. 
you know, you'd probably cut off your belt loop and your leg. Yep. Um, okay, so not lightsabers, but what about vibro weapons? Mm. So like vibro swords, vibro blades, things like that, that use high speed sonic vibrations to make a weapon more de- deadly through a vibro generator in the hilt. It, ca- it sends sonic pulses mm-hmm. that makes it vibrate. And kind of like, and they, even though they have serrated vibro weapons, it kind of makes it to me like the ultimate serrated weapon because it hits you and it causes mass destruction because of that vibration. So we don't have weapons like this, but we do have tools that do this. It's absolutely 100% a viable technology because when you think about it, those sonic vibrations, those vibrations, like if you think about a tool like a saw, The way a saw works is that you drag the saw back and forth across whatever it is you're cutting, right? Band saw, Mm -hmm. hand saw, reciprocating saw, any of those things. Um, That's that that cutting action that can help you cut through various materials. A vibrating blade is essentially doing a saw motion. It's just doing it in very, very uh, fast succession, and it's doing very small, you know, uh, full-length motions. It's not going as far out as like a bandsaw would or something. Um, we do have these. Uh, there are ultrasonic knives. These ultrasonic knives are typically used for things like crafting. You don't use them for attacking enemy soldiers or something. Uh, I mean, crafting sounds more fun. And also <laughs> it can be a dog eat dog world among crafters. I mean, those makers can, can mm-hmm. get mean. You know. So th- in those cases, uh, it's used for stuff like cutting through rubber or plastic uh, not typically the harder materials, but it's really good at cutting through softer materials uh, without having to worry about the blade being super sharp. Like the blade needs to be sharp enough to to make a cut, but it doesn't have to be like razor sharp in order to be effective mm-hmm. because the ultrasonic frequencies are providing the mechanical action that makes up for a lack of sharpness on the part of the weapon, or in this case, the tool. Now, ultrasonic knives also typically are connected to a base station of some sort. So you've typically got like a a little control station and then you have a wire uh, that goes to the knife and that provides the, the energy needed to vibrate it. You've got a transducer in there. Uh, that's what is actually converting electricity into the vibrating energy you need to, uh, to create those ultrasonic vibrations. But uh, otherwise, I mean, like the the principle is sound. Again, you Mm -hmm. run into the issue of needing to figure out where you put your power supply in order to run this for any appreciable length of time. Um, Even with the the lightsaber thing we mentioned earlier with the the Hexmith Industries, they had a backpack connected. They they called it a proto-saber, which is in Star Wars lore as well. But they had a backpack that would hold the fuel that would feed into the lightsaber. And even then it was only good for about five minutes of operation. If you wanted to use it for more than that, you had to hook up, you know, another like fuel tank of oxygen and a fuel tank of propane in order to do any appreciable work Mm -hmm. with it. Same sort of thing when you were getting to the energy sources for something like this, you would still have that issue. Uh, It would, it would drain a battery pretty quickly. If you're talking about a, uh, an ultrasonic transducer that could vibrate a significant blade for a decent amount of time. So, but it's, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong about the premise. 
Okay, Star Wars, good on you. You got something almost kind of, sort of, right? All right, so uh, we have, an, there's another weapon that does have a power source, albeit it's an arc reactor, <laughs> Whiplash. Yeah, yep. From Iron Man <laughs> 2. Whiplash from, from Iron Man 2 or the comics uses uh, an Iron Man Mark 29 armor arc reactor to yeah. make... Yeah, to to make his his armor and also these electric whips that are electromagnetic whips that are made from the copper wires of the electromagnetic motor that powers his suit. So could you make copper wire electromagnetic whips? I mean, you could make a that you could dual wield <laughs> and make them spring loaded. I, I wouldn't recommend it. Um because, I mean, essentially what he's using are live wire electric wires as whips, right? Mm-hmm. It's dangerous stuff. Yeah. Uh, so it's you could have you would have to have very high voltage going through them to do any significant damage the way you see in the movie. Like it's essentially got to be high enough voltage to, again, plasmify the air that's immediately around the whips because that's what it looks like. It looks like it's got a plasma sheath around it. So uh, these would have to have an incredible amount of juice coming from them, which is where you get that arc reactor. Uh, The arc reactor that Iron Man uses, at least in some sources, is said to be able to provide three gigajoules per second of electricity, which is essentially a miniature fusion reactor. Uh, The nuclear reactors that we have today that we use for electricity are fission reactors. They split atoms. Fusion reactors fuse atoms together. They are entirely possible. We have some fusion reactors uh, that are research facilities right now. The problem with fusion reactors is it takes so much energy to get that reaction started that uh, the energy you get out from running the reactor is less than what it took for you to start it. So imagine like it took you... 10 times as much energy for you to start an electric mower as it would for you to cut the grass by hand. Uh, You would sit there and say like, well, yeah, I've got a device that cuts my grass, but it actually is more work to start it than it is for me to cut by hand. Um, Same sort of thing with fusion reactors right now. But if we can ever solve that, it would be a massive help to, uh, to our energy needs. That being said, it's also something that runs super hot despite the the claims of cold fusion. So having it as something that operates your heart, not recommended. You die. Yeah. Um, so the, yeah. you probably wouldn't even want to really wear it. No, you wouldn't want to be near it. You would want a lot of shielding with like active cooling systems between you and it. Uh, but moreover, it wouldn't be strong enough. Like you, you can't make something that small. You can't make it at all right now. You can't make something that small. Uh, which means you don't have the energy source you would need to be able to create that incredible effect. So uh, again, it's something that looks cool in movies, but is not practical uh, and certainly not possible in the implementation we see in the film. So um, I'm sad that Whiplash gave me Whiplash. Not not at least without, you said, protection with a force field. So force fields and force Mm, shields. I look forward to talking about this, but first I'm going to take another break. All right, just before the break, Ariel, you said something about force shields. Are you are you, yes, are you thinking about stuff like the bubble? 
Yes. Force shields, force fields, whatever you want to call it. Barriers made of plasma, energy, other particles, usually without mass, to either contain mass or keep mass out or to contain energy or to keep energy out. They work in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah. In ways that are are amazing and uh, largely impossible, sadly. Um, yeah, because for one thing, like like some of the, the force fields we see they can protect against anything, right? Energy or physical. Mm-hmm. Like it just bounces off. Uh, yeah. I yeah. can't think of anything that would be able to do both. Uh, that being said, there are certain things that, that are akin to a force field. Like you could argue that the Earth's magnetic field is kind of like a force field because the magnetic field is what uh, helps protect us against certain charged particles that get ejected by the sun. And these charged particles have the potential to do some pretty serious damage to us if they were able to get to us. But through a combination of our atmosphere, which also serves as sort of a force field, and the magnetic field of the Earth, uh, that doesn't happen. Now, what can happen is that we can get bombarded with uh, uh, energized particles that we will then actually see as a result here on Earth. Because uh, you've heard of the Aurora Borealis, right? The, the I Northern have. Lights. Yeah. Uh, yes. When we get hit by those sort of energized particles, you can get some really spectacular aurora. In fact, in years past, when we've had particularly eventful solar events, there have been auroras reported as far south as like Texas being, which normally, you know, you can only see them if you're in the really the northern part of the the, the globe, like, you know, up in Canada. Which that's doesn't feel that far north to me. I mean, me. it's pretty far north from where we are, Ariel. <laughs> but that also makes me feel like raising Dion is... Uh, almost could maybe hypothetically be accurate because everybody got their powers from an Aurora Borealis. (laughs) I mean, if that were the case though, then you might get your powers next time you pass really close to your fridge. If you happen to have a lot of permanent magnets attached to it. Uh, Don't I I mean, I get a lot of powers whenever I pass by my fridge. It's called the power of making yogurt (laughs) disappear. Mm, Yogurt. All right. Well, I don't have any more weapons. Well, that's okay. I mean, we can talk about a couple of uh, of non-weapon sci-fi gadgets. And like we said, we have a lot of these. We know that this is a long episode. So we'll, let's just do a couple more, Ariel. And then after that, we'll uh, regroup and see if we would like to do a part two to this. Sounds good. Well, then, if we're only going to do a couple, I'm going to focus on one of my favorite properties, Doctor Who. Who? Uh Exactly. Uh, and Doctor Who is very, very famous for a sonic screwdriver, uh-huh. which is kind of like a miracle multi-tool. Um, you know, each doctor creates their own or Time Lord. And some people who are not even doctors have created the, them with certain technological help. Uh, you know, they're only really thwarted by wood or deadlock seals, which are also very, very vague. And the occasional hairdryer <laughs> uh, can thwart a sonic screwdriver. That's Dr. Ten. Um, and they can. So I'm going to start there because even though. The sonic screwdriver has grown to be this massively powerful, tiny little tool. The original was a 
a tool that just was a beam of ultrasonic mm-hmm. sound that would uh, v- cause something to vibrate. Like, let's say a screwdriver. It would vibrate to loosen the screw and then use directional waves to turn the screw. Sonic screwdriver. Mm-hmm. That was the original form of the sonic screwdriver. That seems... It could also have an ultrasonic energy lance to use as a soldering iron. But that seems a lot more plausible than this thing that can self-repair and send out homing signals to find missing parts. So, Yeah, yeah. Very basic sonic screwdriver. The basic sonic screwdriver you described, it is interesting. Uh, Creating the specific directions is a bit of a challenge, though not impossible. And uh, we have seen people use sonic waves to do incredible things, there's a thing called acoustic levitation. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's using sound waves to make an object float. Uh, and it's it's entirely possible because, again, when you think about what sound waves are, it's really the fluctuations of air pressure. It's vibrating air molecules. Uh, and if you vibrate them in a specific way, you can achieve some pretty incredible results Getting back to that resonant frequency idea, if you were to be able to detect what the resonant frequency of a specific surface was, and then you were able to replicate that at a, uh, a an amplitude, a volume high enough, you could make that thing start to shake itself apart. So in some ways, mm. this kind of works. Like you could create a, a vibration powerful enough or at the really at the right frequency to cause something to shake itself to pieces. That's entirely possible. Uh, you would first have to figure out what that resonant frequency is. And a lot of stuff like is, is be kind of tricky to figure that out and whether or not you could amplify it enough to, to do enough of uh, damage to it is another question, but at least on that basis of the idea of using sound waves to move stuff, that's 100% legit. Well, using it, using so it to do everything that, else, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that also takes out the whole thing of sonic screwdrivers don't work on wood, which occasionally they did. Well, um, yeah. <laughs> because wood, wood, wood is affected exactly, by vibrations. Yeah. No, that's, that's entirely true. Like, there's no reason it wouldn't work on wood, at least for that purpose. Like, wood takes vibration really well, actually. So... Uh, yeah, it, that, that honestly makes no sense from, uh, the perspective of this is working on ultrasonic frequencies. If it's truly a sonic tool, um, it, it's funny mm-hmm. because we really think of it in, in storytelling terms as a deus ex machina, that idea of the, the God yeah. and the machine. This is the, the get out of jail free card that lets our hero get out of a seemingly impossible situation. The writers have written our hero into a, a scenario where they can't figure out any other way to get them out. So they have to use a a tool that magically lets them out of that unless. Yeah. But you know, once you create that, you can't make the genie go back in the bottle. Right. So now the genie's out of the bottle. That's why you have the deadlocks. So now you, yeah. And, and, and the hair dryers, just whenever you, whenever you need it to not work, then you just throw something in there. So it's, it's, (laughs) it's a tool that does whatever the plot needs it to do. And it doesn't work whenever the plot needs it to not work. Just like superhero characters. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> Very how true. you get the Eternals. Uh, all right. So I'm, I'm just going to do one more okay. piece of technology mm-hmm. from Doctor mm-hmm. Who. 
And don't worry, I know this one doesn't exist, but I guess my curiosity is whether we have anything that works similarly. So Doctor Who uses psychic paper. Explain what that does. Uh, Psychic paper works with fractal lines and weak minds. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Doesn't work on William Shakespeare, though. (laughs) No, he's not a weak mind, apparently. To project what the holder of the paper wants the viewer of the paper to see onto the paper, Uh, which means if you're not particularly strong minded, you're not used to using the psychic paper, you don't know you're using psychic paper could mean that you're just putting out whatever random thoughts you're thinking that the other person can see. And that's a whole nother can of worms. But for the purposes of this conversation, do we have anything other than the power of suggestion that works similarly? Ariel, get ready, because I think I'm going to surprise you with this one. Uh, okay, I'm ready. So, I'm braced. So you've heard of brain computer interfaces? Yes, so brain I have, compu- but explain them to me just sure, anyhow. Sure, just for funsies. So a brain computer interface is exactly what it sounds like. It's an, it's a, a way to connect a brain with a computer system. And typically it involves invasive surgery, like implanting electrodes into the brain of the person who's going to use it. So when we talk about implementations of this, it's usually with people who have lost mobility. They don't have control of their limbs. Um, and it's a way to try and extend their mobility and their independence by creating a way to interface with computers and robotics just using thought. So we started working with these technologies and have made some really interesting progress. And it all involves training the person to use the technology and train the technology to work with the person to get the output that you want. Um, and so we have started to see this relationship between thought and computer systems that uh, it's not quite the same thing, obviously. It's not the using of suggestion to implant uh, an idea into the, the thoughts of people. It's using thought to control technology. However, there have been some early experiments that are still in the very early phases of using brain-to-brain communication with a computer system as the intermediary. So in other words, you get two people Mm. who have these brain-computer interface uh, surgeries, and they are attempting to send meaningful information to one another without ever speaking. They may not even be able to speak. And we still have a long way to go with that, But there's some interesting, promising results to that, which could mean you could reach a point where one person could potentially implant a thought into another person. Uh, There's something else that I want to talk about if we do a part two to this that involves a different technology that uh, talks about mice and fiber optic lines and the implanting of false Mm. memories. Uh, These are all possibilities. That's that's a little frightening, but it, it does mean that, like, if I pick up some psychic paper or this technology paper, yeah. this pa- paper that can take down these brainwave thoughts that I'm sending to it, that it's not going to, if I'm unbeknownst, start spilling my dirty laundry and crazy thoughts to the world because I'm holding it, unless I've also had this brain interface yeah, yeah no, surgery. It's, it's not something like we're not going to magically develop telekinetic or telepathic powers. Uh, there's nothing like that. The power suggestion is a real thing. Um, you know, it's, it's, 
it is it is possible to reshape people's memories so that to them it seems as though they're remembering something that really happened when in fact the whole thing was fabricated. We've seen that happen where, you know, if you mm-hmm. just repeat something enough times to someone, it, it gets to a point where in their brains, it's as if that actually has happened, right? Like that is something we, we see that with, uh, you know, brainwashing techniques too, but it's nothing as, as sudden as, glance at this piece of paper that otherwise will appear blank. However, to you, it's going to seem to be whatever it is I want you to see, right? We can't, can't do that. Mm-hmm. But, but the, again, the elements are there where we start to see potential corollaries in the real world. It's just not going to appear as the exact implementation that we see in Dr. Who, which is a shame because everything Very else in Dr. Who is 100% factual. You know, I, I was going to say, look, Doctor Who is two for two on possible. So, <laughs> I mean, uh, vaguely right. possible, vaguely in possible the, in the, in the sl- thinnest slice of possibility. Uh, in my mind, Doctor Who wins the today's I conversation. Mean, it's certainly doing better than Star Wars right now. Uh, we've got a, we've got a yes. lot more of these actually. In fact, I'm looking right now through our outline, and we we haven't even touched on some of the stuff that we've got in our outline where we can come back and do another one. So Ariel, if you're game, I'd love to have you back. I would love to do that. Excellent. Well, something else we want to talk about before we sign off is that show that we're launching. It's launched today. Uh, You can find it on the iHeart network. You can also find it wherever you get your podcasts and it's called the large Nerdron collider. Uh, Ariel, I want to give a, a, a quick background on what that show is all about. Sure. So this show started as my brainchild where it was actually a video series where we would take some of the geeky things that Jonathan and I love and mash them up and kind of figure out what that world would look Mm -hmm. like. Uh, Not making any scientific technology uh, discoveries of our own, sci-fi technology discoveries of our own, but uh, a lot of fun nonetheless. Video production is so much work. We eventually decided to make a podcast sister to it. And iHeart picked it up. And so now we can share all that geekiness with you. We talk about current geek news. We talk about current geek topics, discussions like uh, the Goonies effect, where do you love a movie because it's good or because you watched it when a kid? Why don't other people love that movie? Things like that. And then we do take those properties and we mash them up and we give you pitches on what those shows or properties. And the first few episodes are live right now. So you can check those out. You can go and subscribe and, and listen to those shows. Um, I promise not all of them have me singing in them, but a a couple couple do do. and it's amazing (laughs) and you do not want to miss it. (laughs) So that, that is something really exciting. I hope you guys check that out. And Ariel, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. I look forward to us continuing this conversation. Uh, Thank you for gonna, having me. Going to talk about a lot more sci-fi gadgets and technologies and what, you know, how they work within their mythical universe versus how would it or if it would even work in our real world. We've got a whole bunch of stuff like space travel and uh, various types of, of um, mythical materials, everything from adamantium to mithril. I think that might be a quick fire round That'll be there. a fun one, yeah. Uh, I mean, like, obviously... 
that if you say like, does this really exist? And I say, no, <laughs> that's, that's pretty fast, <laughs> but we can talk about, we can talk about what does make these materials uh, special. And are there any real world materials that share those same kind of qualities? Uh, but you yeah. know, not, not as exotic sounding. We don't have mithril, but do we have something that is like mithril, that kind of thing. And we'll, we'll cover all that in the next episode. If you guys have suggestions for future topics for tech stuff, reach out to me on Twitter. That's the best place to get in touch with me. That would be tech stuff, HSW. That's the handle. And uh, thank you guys so much for listening. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.